From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. So great to see all of you. We've been off for almost three months, if you can believe it, and great to be back with all of you to kick off our new season. I should also mention that uh, even though we've all been recording remotely for the past year and a half, Candace is now at Duke University. So congratulations, Candace. And uh, we're so happy that you are sticking with us on the show. Thank you. This is the best part of my job at Penn State, so I get to keep it. So there's been a lot going on this summer. Uh, I thought it would be good to catch up on some of what's happened over the past three months in the context of some of the themes that we've been talking about on the show. We'll touch on Afghanistan and the ongoing debates over critical race theory, the census, perhaps some other things. But I want to start with COVID. Uh, I think we were all excited to put our masks away at the beginning of the summer. Everybody was talking about the hot vac summer, and we, we had a little bit of that, but now the masks are back out of the drawer, and there's ongoing debates, and I think probably even stronger debates over mask and vaccine mandates than there were at the beginning of the summer. So Chris, I want to start with you. A couple of weeks ago, you wrote a piece for The Conversation, which we'll link to in the show notes. Tell us what you argued in that piece regarding vaccination and what has been the reaction you've received to it. I just was arguing that people who are vaccine hesitant are making a self-interested evaluation of the risks associating with taking the vaccine on the one hand and choosing not to take the vaccine on the other. And they were deciding that for themselves, it was better for them not to take the vaccine. And I think the arguments they present are not even close to being good enough. There is no good self-interested reason to not take the vaccine, but there are reasons. And they're not completely irrational. But my argument was that it is not sufficient in a democracy to make your decisions solely in terms of your own self-interest. That in a democracy, we have to concern ourselves with, evaluate the choices we make and their impact on other people. So I'm saying vaccine refusal is not just immoral, it's un-American. I knew I was going to get a lot of response, right? And I did. And it was striking to me. I got a lot of people responsible, articulate, and some that were just the absolute opposite of that, as you might expect. But what I noticed, I'm thinking, and I cannot recall a single example where somebody accepted the terms of my argument. In other words, where they said, well, I have a right to not concern myself with others, or this is not what democracy demands. What I got was that I was not evaluating the risk assessment that they were making accurately, and that I could not make that judgment about their own circumstance, and therefore I was wrong in terms of this personal risk assessment. So if I could suggest maybe a different framing that 
people understood that article or how people understood that article. A couple of years ago with the Mood of the Nation poll, a couple of my colleagues posed a question to Americans about what it means to them to be patriotic. And I, I wonder if thinking about what it means to people to be patriotic maybe gets a little closer to what it means to them when you tell them that they're American or un-American than it does to tell them that they're being good Democrats or not. And, and when you ask people about what it means to be patriotic, I'm not surprised by some of the response that you're getting because the majority of Americans, according to our polling anyway, and we did this for regular listeners know the Mood of the Nation poll uses open-ended questioning. So this was in their own words. And the majority of the responses that we got back when we asked people about what it means to be patriotic have nothing to do at all with their behavior as citizens, but rather a sort of emotional response or a feeling mm. response for themselves. They understand patriotism not as an action or a behavior, but a feeling or a public display. So I'm not surprised, actually, that that was kind of the response that you got because that's not how people think about what it means to be American or not. I think that's right. And well, let's face it, no one wants to be called immoral and un-American, right? And I did that deliberately to kind of get people to read the article. But I also think it's true that patriotism, being an American ought to mean more. And really in terms of Madison and the other founders, must mean more than simply feeling a pride about your country. True. It it requires certain behaviors from you. Yeah. I think actually this distinction, Michael, that you're making, and maybe I'm hearing an additional distinction between being unpatriotic, un-American, and undemocratic. Yes. So from what I'm getting from you about patriotism is about pride and a certain feeling. When I think about the un-American part or being American part, I think one of the values is individualism and Mm -hmm. is a concerted, a very strong orientation toward individual rights, which perhaps is still undemocratic. So I think that one of the things that we have to do is to maybe parse out even kind of our ideals about what America is and how we think about democracy, generally speaking. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, but I don't think that they're one in the same either. What Chris has laid out is that democracy, and I think we would agree on this, that democracy does require some form of communitarianism and that we have to care about the larger societal well-being but we're kind of moving away from that as Americans. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, at another time, we asked people on the Mood of the Nation poll, what did democracy mean to them? Or what was it they most valued about democracy? And there, Cantus, we get the majority of people, especially among older Americans, saying exactly what you just said, that what democracy is about is actually individual freedom. It's to be able to do what you want. And we hear that rhetoric, obviously, quite a bit around vaccines. Now, 
I don't agree with this. I think that your freedom essentially starts to end when it's really affecting other people around you. And that's what a lot of our laws are based upon. But the idea that people see American democracy in terms not of your responsibility to others, but in terms of government's responsibility to leave you alone to do what you want, then you're going to get exactly the kinds of responses that we get. Madison said human beings aren't angels, right? And because they're not, we need government. And so the idea that human beings are self-interested and are more interested in their own welfare than they are of others is written into our political DNA. But those same founders also argued that that was not enough. And even though they were pushing hard against this kind of Roman civic republicanism that demanded these incredibly high standards of civic behavior, and they said that is not going to happen. It's just not possible for human beings to live up to that. They still said that we need more than just selfishness. And I agree with Candace. I had this guy call me afterwards who was talking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, And we all remember that the line for people to give blood in New York was hundreds deep. There was this kind of like, how can I help, right? I mean, that was the first question that you heard. And I just wonder if any of that spirit is still out there operative in our society. I mean, look, there are communities where 70 or 80% of people are vaccinated. And then there are communities where 20, 25, 30% of communities are vaccinated. I do think that we do have millions of Americans who are concerned about themselves and others. For example, so part of my adventure at Duke is that I live in a dormitory. And my son, who's eight in third grade and therefore not eligible to be vaccinated, also lives there alongside my husband. And when the students see my son coming, if they're not wearing their mask, which they often are, they put it on immediately Hmm. because they know him and they know that he is not vaccinated. So I do think that there is an ethos among a great many Americans, especially in this case, right, towards being vaccinated. One thing that stands out to me is that just like as you're saying that all men are not angels. And so we need institutional mechanisms to kind of reduce negative externalities. But that idea that we could have these institutional mechanisms is also reliant upon leaders who will do the right thing for the larger number of people. And we've come to this position where there are plenty of elected representatives who are not doing their part to use the institutional mechanisms for the betterment of communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly individual citizens are responsible for doing the right thing, but there is also a role for our political leaders in setting the example and using policy. The most selfish inclinations within citizenry is exactly what the founders were most scared of and which they tried their best to address in the Federalist Papers and to undermine yeah. in terms of the way the Constitution was set up. I mean, I think Madison was talking about people pursuing within the domestic and political and private sphere their own interest. 
you know, whatever that might be. But I, I think we're getting into something a little bit different when we're telling people how it is, which is essentially what we're doing. <laughs> and we should understand how fraud it is mm-hmm. when telling people exactly how it is that they should assess what it means to take the vaccine or to do anything to your body that you might not want to do. I take the point that there is an individual risk assessment that everyone has to make and no one is going to strap you down and put a needle in your arm, but it is not democratic to make that risk assessment and not take into account the effects of your decision on other people. And that's all I would want to say, but I would insist on that. So some of these dynamics that we've been talking about, this conflict between individualism and the the collective good is also playing out across our school system, both in terms of mask mandates, which I think have many of the similar dynamics, but in this case, what people should or shouldn't do for their kids, with the exception, of course, that children under 12 are not yet eligible to be vaccinated. And it's putting a lot of school boards in a particularly tough spot. You read stories about you know, fights least. breaking out, people ripping we masks off of each are. other, all kinds of things. <laughs> Michael, I know you have done a lot of research on school boards over the course of your career, not necessarily on this masking issue, but how have you been thinking about some of these things playing out in, in the context of what you know about these organizations and the people who tend to comprise them? The way I tend to think of it is who should decide what children learn. And school boards and schools are sort of the bastion of local control in the American democracy. They have uh, long been seen as the setting where communities and parents get to decide what goes on in schools. But there's always been a tension there between, first of all, the states stepping in and through standards and other kinds of things say, no, you really need to learn about this rather than that. And also where there is often a conflict between experts and others. Experts think that they have the authority to determine what should be taught in their subject areas. And in some areas, this isn't controversial, right? I mean, there aren't really fights at schools about whether algebra should come before calculus and where trig fits into the school curriculum. We just leave that to the math pedagogical experts and they make those sorts of decisions. It gets a lot more fraught in some kinds of science classes if the question has to do with should evolution be taught in a real way? Should climate change be taught in a real way? Here are these conflicts about what the kids should learn and who should decide become more fraught. And maybe it's not the experts, maybe it's the communities. We know that in states that rely a lot on energy extraction, they're much less likely to teach about climate change. It's clearly a political element to what kids are being taught. I actually think that the masking issue and the critical race theory thing are our friends (laughs) insofar (laughs) as they are both problems that do not exist. Mm -hmm. They are manufactured problems where the solutions are worse than whatever it is that they're trying to address. In the case of students masking, thankfully, state college area school districts were in person all of last year. And the students were masked every day 
and everyone was fine, and my son lost zero learning. Students in North Carolina, where I live now, missed a year and a half of school, right? And now they're going back, and at least in in our area in Durham, everyone is masked, but this is not a real problem. It's not an ethical problem. It's not a scientific problem. It's a made-up problem by parents who want to, I don't know, flex uh, whatever kind of power they might think that they have. It's similar to critical race theory. We don't even teach critical race theory in public schools. It's not a thing. And I guess maybe, Michael, if you have any insight on this, what's being attacked is culturally relevant and historically accurate teaching, which has been going on since the 90s, right? Why now? At a certain level, Candace, I completely agree with that. But I think where I was saying that I see the critical race theory question somewhat differently is if you move a little bit away from the content of it, and I completely agree that there's no problem here that's being solved, and I would take it even a step further if you ask many of the people who are opposed to teaching critical race theory what it is, they can't possibly tell you. And when you do see them try to explain what it is, especially for those of us in the academy, we think, oh, well, that's just completely wrong. That's not what it is at all. It's just a political issue around race. And we've seen that for like ever. But the reason I see the race questions a little bit differently is that I see them in the context of ongoing discussions, debate and conflict about who should decide what children learn. And in terms of school politics, that's always a central issue. And is it going to be local control? Is it going to be the experts? Is it going to be the states popping in and passing random laws about, well, you can't teach this, but you have to teach this? Or is it going to be something that they do through the standards? And once they also start doing it through the standards, you know, it may seem like it's not all that important, but once it gets to Texas and then it gets into all the textbooks across the country, it becomes kind of important. I think there is a core perspective that unites the anti-mask in school and the anti-critical race theory. And it is this populist notion that the elites are trying to undermine my status as a true American and undermine my condition to raise my children the way I want to and undermine a cultural, economic, political status quo that was just fine before the elites came in and screwed it all up. So what critical race theory means is, in their mind, is that you are teaching my white child to be unhappy or to be embarrassed about them being white because you're teaching them about the Tulsa massacre and they don't need to know that they're just kids. So by presenting them a more accurate narrative of what American history really was, you are undermining their former status as being the hegemon in our culture. And so that's what the beef is. I would like to encourage all of us to not even use the term critical race theory in this conversation. The issue at hand is whether schools should teach culturally relevant and historically accurate 
Yeah, exactly. Information to our children. That's it. That's what yeah. we're, that is, that is the actual debate that we're having. Mm-hmm. The critical race theory, it's a distraction because the conversations that are happening at school boards are about whether we're teaching about slavery, enslavement, mm-hmm. or voluntary immigrants who came, like involuntary immigration. We're talking about was Tulsa a race massacre or was it a riot? So we're actually having a debate about whether we're going to teach our children about racial inequality, structural issues, sexism, homophobia, all of these things. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about here. The framing issue you brought up, Candace, I think is really important. I think one thing that the sort of anti-democratic forces are very good at is coming up with or co-opting or redefining words and then the broader media. And I know we could have a whole other debate about whether this podcast is the media or not, but putting that aside, we just did it. We (laughs) fell into the trap right there. And so I think that that is really important in terms of the words do matter here. Yeah. I mean, politics is often a fight over language and terminology and who gets to control that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I appreciate Candace pointing it out because we're falling into exactly the trap that we're being asked to fall into, which is to term this by a scary sounding, academic sounding label. With the time we have left, I want to shift gears here and, and talk a little bit about Afghanistan, which especially over the past couple of weeks has been a big story in politics and in democracy. It also raises an important question about democracy, and that is, what does it take to establish a democracy? Where can you build a democracy? Can an outside power come in and build it or impose it? And I think Americans have this notion that we can because of our effectiveness with the Marshall Plan and everything after World War II. We saw these democracies develop while we're pouring tons and tons of money into them and military support while they do it and all of that. But Afghanistan is a very different part of the world and a very different kind of culture. And it's very corrupt, which is very difficult for a democracy to establish itself in a highly corrupt kind of society. Well, it's very tribal. It's very, it's a very tribal country. None of us are really experts on this, on right. Afghanistan and, and building democracies and that kind of thing. But uh, it's not that easy to do, and we weren't able to do it. Isn't that what we're looking at? Yeah. I mean, I do think yeah. it's not the case that it's never worked, right? I mean, it worked in Japan, it worked in Korea, and it worked in Europe. But there's probably more examples of where it did not work. And given the huge investment of blood and treasure, well, obviously there's something deeply arrogant about us going into another culture and saying, we got the answer for you, right? And almost invariably, we go in there not knowing enough about the culture. I mean, I remember in Iraq, it was like there was questions about what's the difference between the Sunni and the Shiite. And if you don't know that, there's simply no way you can help that country become democratic. All I would say is there is evidence that it can work. And obviously there's all kinds of political scientists and historians who are trying to parse out what are the critical features necessary to sustain a democracy or to grow a democracy. We were looking for somebody 
It was basically why right. we went in and we wanted to break up the terrorist networks that were supported by the Taliban. That's why we went in to Afghanistan and we wanted to destroy to the extent that we could the Taliban because we saw them as supporting terrorists that were as a threat to the United States. Right. Yes. But now we talk about it in terms of having established a democracy because it kind of became that over time. I mean, we were sort of trying to do two things over time there, right? We we're trying to build the Afghanistan military in order to be able to take on the Taliban so that we didn't have to do it and trying to build some sort of a democratic government in Afghanistan. But that was never the goal. Or at least a, a stable one where we'd be less likely to have to deal with a terrorist base. That was probably a more realistic goal. But yeah, it does raise another slightly. kind of interesting question in the American democracy. And that is Joe Biden, who's taken quite a hit here on this, has stood up to uh, generals in a way that uh, most recent presidents have not. I mean, there's been no doubt that it's been the military that has made it very difficult for Trump and for Obama to get out of Afghanistan. And Joe Biden has been for years saying, you know, we shouldn't be listening to these generals. We need to be doing what we should be doing. And he stood up to them. Right. I mean, literally, he was making that argument when he was vice president. And, yeah, and, and now been, he's president yeah. and he's saying, no, we, we have to get out. And yeah, I obviously, mean, I, it's always easier to get in than it is yeah. to get out. We are also in the midst of a humanitarian crisis regarding Afghan refugees. And I think that's another way that the world has changed in the past 20 years is that the climate for taking in refugees has become much more hostile, I think, both in the U.S. and in Europe because of the populist activity we've seen and those kind of things. So it's pretty concerning to think from that standpoint about is the world going to come together to help here? Maybe this is a weak tie to the previous point about um, what we teach our students. But Americans, generally speaking, don't have a very broad historical perspective and foundation, no less much uh, background around foreign policy. I think that if we had more of both, then we would fully recognize our obligation here, that we could have kind of a nuanced evaluation of what has happened over the past two decades. And now that we are where we are, what we owe to the Afghan people, especially those who help Americans, who were translators, journalists, activists, all sorts of folks who are probably in imminent danger if they remain in Afghanistan and in right in part due to our own role in the country over the past two decades. You know, Candace, I was just going to say that I think there's a very similar reaction here that you mentioned in terms of COVID, right? I mean, I think there are a lot of Americans who completely recognize that point and who are more than ready to welcome these refugees and are confident that they are going to become fine, upstanding, responsible, contributing American citizens. And yet there's another part of the country that sees any change as yet another manifestation of this fundamental threat. And so that's enough reason to say no. 
Yeah. Well, remember, we had John Hibby on the show last year talking about the absolute centrality of immigration issues to the contemporary Republican Party. And so this falls right on their lap. There have been many Republican governors. I'm thinking of Hutchinson in Arkansas, and there have been some others around the country as well. And so it seems to be kind of dividing the Republican Party a little bit. But it does fit right into that kind of framing. I mean, the centrality of anti-immigrant sentiment to especially the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. And that's not even more. to talk about Brexit or Germany or some of the you know far-right movements we've seen across right. Europe. And I think all these governments recognize the role that immigration has played to the rise of populism. So they're kind of torn between what they think understand is their responsibility to take in Afghanistan refugees, especially those that help the United States, but also educated women who are just facing potentially catastrophic circumstances Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, but also recognizing that the waves of Syrian immigrants really contributed to the rise of populism in their countries. All right. Well, we could keep talking about these things for probably a whole another hour, but we do need to wrap things up. If this discussion has been any indication, we will have no shortage of things to talk about for the rest of this season and beyond. So thank you, all of you. So great to be back at it again for another season for Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.